Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Steve Levine, as many of you know, is a member of the World Affairs Council, and he's also become a very close friend. And when Steve called me and told me, um, now I guess about 18 months ago, that Random House had given him an advance to write a, a, a very timely book, I said, well, that's great news, but will you promise me that you'll speak to Random House and let us be the very first organization to present your book? And so the day, last night Steve arrived, he, uh, his, I guess, on KERA with Chris Boyd, and uh, today we have the opportunity and really the privilege to be among the first to hear Steve talk about, about his book. Steve has left Dallas. He is now the chief correspondent for Business Week, and as most of you know, he has served in the past as a foreign correspondent for the New York Times, the Washington Post, Financial Times, <coughs> and of course the Wall Street Journal, where he was until just about a year ago. His book that was published last year, the Oil and the Glory was named by Business Week. Now, that's interesting. I wonder how you worked that. But that was before you were hired or even interviewed. I know that's the truth. was named as one of the top ten business books of, of last year. And it was also uh, ranked as the top energy book of 2007 and is still right up there, right next to Daniel, Daniel Jurgen's The Prize. <laughs> um, uh, please join me in welcoming our good friend, World Affairs Council member, Steve Levine. I moved to Dallas in uh, 2003, right? 2005, 2005. And uh, the next day, the phone rang in the Wall Street Journal office, and it was Jim Falk. This is Jim Falk. Okay, you know. And uh, I'm, I'm with the World Affairs Council, and uh, love to have lunch with you. And, and uh, we... Um, we met, and uh, Jim really welcomed me into, uh, into the, uh, the community, became a really good friend. And J Jim uh, created a really fantastic organization. I think you all know that it was embryonic uh, when he came to Dallas, and it's grown hu huge. So Jim, thanks very much. And Jim, Paul, thanks. Um, uh, when I wrote my first book, uh, The Oil and the Glory, um, uh, first I, w I just wanted to say that uh, Steve Weber, one of the first guys I met in Kazakhstan, is sitting right here. He walked into the hotel tonight. I haven't seen him since 1994. D don't say all the factual mistakes in the book. Okay. Um, when I wrote the book, I, w I was... I was uh, happy about it, gratified about it, to finally get all of these events, this whole stretch of territory, all of the years between hard um, covers. But I, I always re regretted that a whole other dimension of the time, uh, and the folks here who I, I met a lot of people tonight, who uh, former or current oil guys spent time in Russia, 
and on the Caspian Sea, and that other dimension is the underside, the dark side, and the, the side where people get killed and people get hurt. And uh, there's, no, there's no politics in that, and, 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 that, and uh, in that there's no, there, you don't get the soul, that, that side of things, you get the business side. And uh, I know, I guess I'm, what I'm gonna say is gonna sound re- really uh, gruesome, but it's, but it's true, or gr- grim, but I, I, was, uh, I was glad when uh, 2006, November 2006, um, this is Alexander Litvinenko, Alexander Litvinenko, uh, a, uh, a vociferous critic, a defector from the KGB who lived in London, was poisoned with a nuclear isotope. And I was sent, this is before, this is after. This is three days before he died. Uh, 23 days it took, it took to die. And he, he, uh, he had... Um, he had had a meeting with a couple of other guys from the KGB at the Millennium Hotel in London. Drank some tea, went home, and uh, within hours he was vomiting violently and, uh, and told his wife, you know what, uh, when, when, uh, when I was in KGB school, um, we, had, we had a session about uh, uh, chemical warfare. I think I've been poisoned with a with a chemical weapon. Oh, Sasha, Sasha, his nickname. Don't say that. That's that's impossible. And well, he he in fact had had ingested polonium two ten, an obscure nuclear isotope that really hadn't been uh, on the radar screen since. The 70s. It was used starting in the 40s, in the 50s, and the 60s as a trigger with beryllium to make uh, to make a, uh, a triggering device in nuclear bombs. The nuclear bomb over Nagasaki and over Hiroshima were triggered by polonium 210, and somehow somebody in well, I think Russia, somebody someplace uh, remembered that wanted to get Litvinenko, a critic of the, of the Russian regime, and, uh, and, and told the mastermind that, <coughs> that this, uh, this uh, isotope is ingenious because it's not detectable by any, any, uh, any detector in an airport. Airport Detectors are uh, are designed to uh, to pick up beta or gamma rays, which are the typical uh, emission from a, from an uh, from uranium. Polonium two ten emits alpha particles, undetectable. Alpha particles you can get them on your skin, won't hurt you. Uh, you can carry them in a cigarette pack in a Normal piece of paper. Won't they won't uh, they won't get out? They won't hurt anybody. Um, but if you swallow them, the the uh, or ingest it, if you breathe it in, the particles uh, comparatively are like 
bowling balls compared to a beta particle of a marble, marble size. In other words, these are slow-moving particles, but they bombard your system. So he in, ingested this polonium-210, and it pulverized his, his insides. And he was dead within 23 days. A month later, Random House called and said, uh, do you want to do a book about this guy? And uh, I didn't want to do a book about this guy. And I, and, and I said, I don't want to do a book about this guy. But, but, uh, but why, don't we just do, why don't we do a book on Russia? Why don't we try, try to define Russia? And what really is Russia? And, uh, and literally, that was it. I never wrote a proposal. And they just said to go at this. And uh, so I, I began to look at the, at the country and look for a lens through which I could understand this place. Now, I lived 11 years out there, but I lived in, in the Caucasus and Central Asia, which is one way of understanding Russia because it's been at the butt end of Russia's behavior for hundreds of years. But it's not, it's not Russia itself. And um, flew out to London, uh, st- started doing interviews, and flew, flew out to Moscow. And what I, what I came to understand is that uh, there's a line. In Russia, there's a line. And uh, for some people, it's an invisible line. And for other people, it's visible. If you cross that line in Russia, you can be murdered. And uh, the thing about it is that uh, the killers know that they, won't, uh, that they won't be prosecuted for this. and. The book I wrote is the story of seven people, six of them who die, either from crossing the line or being in a place where that line was crossed. Boris Yeltsin and Vladimir Putin both both, uh, very jealously identified themselves as, as rightful members of the G7. They insisted on, on expanding the G7, the group of industrial countries, to make it the G8, the United States and Britain and France and Germany, Japan and so on. Um, the, the, what, uh, what I came to understand is that this line, the difference, uh, Russia, Russia is not a, is, is not a, uh, a member that uh, meshes with these other countries because of this line. And because of a term that, uh, that I kept hearing over, over and over again, bez, bez predel. Bez predel in Russian means anything goes. If you cross that line, anything goes. And uh, I have to tell you a couple stories about, about that. The first, the first, uh, the first one is, is a, about being in the wrong place, just being in the wrong place where, where the line is, is crossed. And uh, October 23rd, 2002, uh, there was the 300th performance of a musical in, in Moscow called Nordost. Uh, Nordost meaning North 
East, and it was a musical uh, about uh, soldiers during World War II. And uh, Ilya Lysak, Ilya Lysak was a bass player in the in the Nordost Orchestra. He uh, he he was tuning up his bass that night. He felt really really lucky to be in in Nordost. Moscow, as those here who, who have spent time in Russia know, uh, is filled, overfilled with very talented musicians. So, uh, so he happened to get a, a job uh, as, as, as one of the 31 musicians in the, in the uh, orchestra. Irina Fadeeva and, and, and her son Yaroslav Irina was at, was at her apartment, which was located just behind Nordos Theater. She could, she could see the theater. She, Yaroslav, her sister, her niece, were all in the apartment, all dressed up, leaving. As they, they were going to a musical, as they went out the door, Irina looked at her at the tickets, and she realized the tickets were for the previous night. She had missed, she had, she had missed the musical. And, but as she really wanted to go see something. And walking out the door, she thought, Nordos is playing. Why don't, we go, why don't we go see Nordos? And no one else wanted to go. She persuaded them to go. Uh, Irina Fadeeva, her sister, and Yaroslav and her niece were in the 11th row. Next. Yelena Baranovskaya, her husband... Sergei, a, 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 um, a colonel, a, for, a retired colonel uh, who fought in Afghanistan in the, uh, in the GRU, uh, the uh, military intelligence, and her 20-year-old son, Andre. Uh, they were celebrating. It had been one year since, since they got married, her, her second marriage, his first, and they had just moved into a new apartment. And dinner and a bottle of champagne was waiting for them when they got home from Nordost. They were in the 18th row. Uh, what happened was that in the second act, um, Ilya Lysak from the, from the orchestra pit looked up and noticed that, that suddenly there were these four guys dressed in fatigues who were not in the play, they were they uh, they were there with the soldiers, and to be honest, he didn't think much of it because because the director of the play was always uh, was always improvising, until these four guys uh, one by one started to push the actors off of the stage, and and uh, and the musicians one by one stopped playing, and. Yelena Baranovskaya's husband, Sergei, said, get ready. We're going to stay here a long time. Putin is not going to save us. And, uh, and three days uh, of, uh, 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 for the next three days, they were hostages of a band of 40 Chechen terrorists. Deme- uh, Chechenia, Chechenia being a breakaway republic of, uh, well, a 
wannabe breakaway republic of Russia in the Caucasus, uh, and these being rebels from there, uh, uh, seized the theater. There were 40 of them and kept them there for three days. Um, in the middle of the night, on the third day, um, Ilya Lysak looked up and saw this white mist coming down on the theater and, uh, and didn't know what to make of that. And Irina Fadeeva, there with Yaroslav, uh, was, was really surprised to see the women, the black widows, the women terrorists, suddenly sliding down the walls. And, the, and, and one of the terrorists on the stage suddenly put his mask up and shout, everybody get down. And her son, Yaroslav, say to her, I'm scared, I'm scared, mom. And Irina say, don't worry, I'm always going to be with you. We'll never be apart. I'll, I'll, I'll hold your hand. And she put a, she wet a handkerchief and put it over his, his face. And Yelena Baranovskaya did exactly the same thing. She, she, she put uh, three wet handkerchiefs over, over uh, well, over her son, her husband, and over her own face. What, what, what had ha- happened is that on the third day, uh, Putin uh, uh, instituted a, a, uh, a uh, raid, and, and they, uh, they, they had slowed down the uh, negotiations with these hostages, and, uh, and meanwhile set up the pumping in of an opiate in, into the theater. And, uh, and at the end, 129 of the 800 people in the theater were dead. Alpha troops uh, stormed into the theater and killed every one of the terrorists. And then, <clears throat> and then uh, the 129 uh, spectators can we go to the next the next slide? This is the this is the scene at the at the at the end. What what happened was that the government had put all of its focus on killing the terrorists and had not done any planning for the rescue of the hostages. The the um, the hostages. Uh, Literally, most of them sw- swallowed their own tongues. Irina Fadeeva woke up in, in, the, in the hospital and, and saw that Yaroslav was not with her and, and started screaming. And, uh, and the doctor said, why, why are you screaming? Why are you screaming? Everybody has been saved. Nobody's dead. And that was the story that the government was putting out at that at that time, and she began to call around to all the hospitals. She couldn't find Yaroslav. She, she, the the uh, the um, army had surrounded the hospital, wouldn't let anyone in or out. She managed to get out, and she went home. And uh, her friends were all there, and they all were going to fan out to find uh, Yaroslav. And and um, uh, that's when they saw on the TV finally the list of people who, who had died, and Yaroslav's name was first. 
she found, she found his body at, at a morgue. And uh, she felt his head and saw that what, what happened was he was shot in the first barrage of fire when, uh, when, the, uh, when the commandos were trying to, to kill the terrorists. And she just you know, didn't, didn't know what to do and left out the back door, got a taxi, and she drove to a, a bridge over the Moscow River that she and Yaroslav used to go to a lot and just look at the river. And she didn't have any money to pay for the taxi, so she gave the taxi driver her uh, gold ring, her gold wedding ring. And she stood there on the bridge, and she, and she just thought, she thought, uh, you know, she thought what she had said to her, to her son, we'll always be together, we'll always be together, and she jumped. Um, she went under, underwater, but there was so much ice in the river that she couldn't drown. She just kept coming back up. And, uh, and a guy stopped his car on the, on the bridge. What are, you doing? what are you doing swimming in the dead of the winter? And where are you from? I'm from the morgue, she said, which made him think you know, she was uh, kooky. And she said, no, I'm from Nordos. And, and, and everybody knew what had happened at Nordos. And he took her, he took her ho- home. Uh, Yelena Baranovskaya lost her, both her son and her father. And the, um, um, the, the, the uh, one, one of the um, uh, sort of postscripts on this. Putin, of course, said, you know, we saved, uh, we saved as many as we could. Uh, I'm sorry that we couldn't save everybody. Um, one, of the, one of the things that saved uh, Irina Badeva was a reporter named Anna, Anna Politkovskaya, who, who was a uh, fearless war correspondent. Uh, she was uh, not, not entirely uh, celebrated at home, but abroad she was. And at the moment that, let's go to the next, the next slide. At the moment that Nordost was going on, she was in California, in Santa Monica, at UCLA, receiving an award for journalism. And, uh, and she walked into a hotel, into her hotel, and there was a message, call Moscow. And, uh, and, and she did, and she found out what was going on. This incident was going on, and she flew immediately out there. She got into the theater. It turned out that, that uh, you know, as the way that all of these victims intersect, her son's best friend in childhood was Ilya Lysak, the bass player in the orchestra, who also was the ex-boyfriend of her daughter. And she was, she was um, the most famous uh, war correspondent of the Second Chechen War. And all of, these, all of these Chechen rebels knew her, and they regarded her as a neutral. They accepted her inside the theater, and she tried to mediate 
She tried to mediate a, uh, a peaceful uh, end to it. And she was furious at Putin when, when, it, when, when it ended with the deaths of all these people because the government refused to, to release to the hospitals, to the doctors, to anybody what opiate they had used. They didn't have any, they, they didn't know what antidote to use. And she also thought that, that, uh, that Putin should have negotiated longer. In the end, she regarded Putin as a, really a uh, lucky soul who, who, who just, because he happened to befriend the right guy, ended up in the Kremlin and, uh, and, was, uh, and was making the Russian people suffer and small and taking away their freedoms. And she became Putin's greatest critic. Uh, Anna Polakovskaya was a, she was a giant as a correspondent, but she was also a bit of a curmudgeon. She, 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 um, she would uh, walk down the street with her, with her friends, and if, if she saw you know, somebody smoking, she would say, stop polluting my air. And if she saw someone drinking, she, she would say, you drunk, get out of my face. And cursing, you're, uh, uh, you know, you're, uh, don't, don't talk that way in front of children. And, and, the, and these people, as a, as a whole, I would, told, would, would say to her, you know, the equivalent of, go to hell. And her friends would have to pull her away uh, from these confrontations. She had a messiah complex that, that went from social affairs like that all the way to, uh, to high politics. And, uh, and she, she adopted Chechnya as a, as a special cause and the Chechen people. I was a correspondent in Chechnya in the first war. And I also was a correspondent in the Afghan war and in Tajikistan and in Nagorno-Karabakh uh, in Georgia. Now, I felt very small next to Anna Politkovskaya for her courage. I stopped going to Chechnya because of the kidnapping. Uh, that's where I drew the line. I didn't want to be kidnapped. And she, she, uh, she kept going. And um, her friends were, were, were afraid, afraid for her because she, she, she made enemies every time she wrote a story. When she would go into the office in the morning, Novaya Gazeta, there would be a line of people starting in, in her office and all the way out the door and up the, up the hall, waiting to... Can you tell my mother I'm still talking? <laughs> so they, they wanted to tell Anna their story, and she wanted, she wanted her to publish it, just to, to loop back and then come back Irina Fadeeva didn't know Anna Politkovskaya, but she went to Novaya Gazeta, and she, she, she was told about her and just went to the desk.
and I talked to Anna Polakovskaya, and Anna wrote uh, a piece about, a story about her called 11th Row, Seat 5, that told this whole story. And, and um, Irina uh, described it as taking me by the finger and pulling me out from drowning. And a lot of those, uh, a lot of those people she wrote about felt that way about her. And these rebels in, the, in Nordos felt that way about her. But as I say, every one of those stories also had a villain, and the villains didn't like her. And uh, her friends thought she was going to die. And uh, Marion Pearl, the, the, uh, the widow of Danny Pearl, uh, who, was, who was killed in Pakistan, told me she gave, she, she gave an award she was the uh, presenter of an, uh, a journalism award to uh, Anna in New York six months before she died. She said that everybody, she, Marianne, and everybody in that room knew that Anna was going to die. And Anna herself told, told her friends, uh, I'm not going to die in my bed. And she, and she, she would tell her, her daughter, Vera, um, you know, uh, just remember this document. It's right, I put it right here. She would do this. She'd say, you're going to need this. You're going to need that. The con context, Vera, Vera told me, was that, was that, you know, this unspoken thing. You know, mama is going to die. And her, and, and her family begged her stop doing this reporting. And she said, you know, the usual kind of thing in, the, in this case, if I don't do it, who's going to do it? So she kept doing it. But she had, uh, she had made a, a, a promise to her children, Ilya, who was the boy, and Vera, who was the girl, if either of them uh, gave her a grandchild, if either of them had a, a child, she would at, at least stay in Moscow. And Vera got pregnant in 2006. And, uh, and the thinking was that, well, maybe she's going to stop. And Vera herself said, Ma Mama never just said something. When she said something, she was really going to do it. And, uh, and um, on uh, October the 5th in 2006, this was, oh, about six weeks before, before Vera was going to give birth, Anna and Vera were driving separately around Moscow. They were looking for a sink. Uh, Vera needed a, a, a sink to bathe her child in. And, uh, and they, were, uh, they were communicating by, by phone. Oh, I found this sink. It's perfect. Well, who, you know, who made the sink? No, I don't like that one. Let me try. And then going back and forth. And all day uh, until, until finally around, around uh, 3 o'clock, uh, uh, Vera, by, by cell phone, told her, Mom, listen, why don't you go home and, and rest? Her mom had been poisoned on a story a couple of years before, and she, and, and she could easily tire. They were very worried about her health, and so Anna went, went home. And about 10 minutes later, uh, Vera, Vera called her mom something about another sink. And the phone didn't answer, and uh, and she she got worried 
you know, thinking something about the poisoning. And then Ilya, her brother, called her and said, you know, I just, I just called Mama, and, and, uh, and there's no answer. Uh, and, and, and they decided Ilya would go over to the apartment because, uh, because he, was, he was near there to check on, on her. And a few minutes later, Vera's, Vera's phone rang, and, uh, and Ilya said, they killed Mama. And what happened is that, is that there, was a, there was a camera at a bank across the way. And, and uh, a man in it wearing a baseball cap had hidden in wait. And uh, Anna was going up and down the elevator, uh, bringing groceries into the apartment. And when she came out, uh, the man shot her three times in her body. And then, as she fell, walked over to her and shot her a final time in her head. It's a uh, uh, professional killer. Um, last week, three men were charged in this, in this case. These were, uh, these were um, a man who, uh, who told the killers where Anna lived, a lookout, and a driver. The man identified as the killer has disappeared, and the mastermind is not, is not known. And this is a, this is a, uh, a thread that runs through these, these deaths, is that, is that, again, it is known in, among the killing class, that class of people that I assume no one here, apart from Steve Weber, know that, that um, they know when they find out when. There's some signal, a secret handshake or something, when it's okay to kill somebody. And, uh, and they just do it. And they know that they're not going to be punished for that. And that's, and that's what, what happened in all of these cases. It is, it is Bez Predel, anything goes. All of these individuals crossed, crossed this line. Um, and I just, I just wanted to close with, a, with why, why do we care about this? Um, uh, Russia, over the last few years, has come back on, on to the world stage huge on the backs of its oil. And, uh, and there, you know, the question always is, should we fear Russia? Um, should we deal with Russia? How do we deal with R- Russia? Um, and... My answer to that is, is this is the answer. Is that it's not, you know, one, one can define Russia in terms of the KGB state, since Putin is from the KGB and invited all his KGB guys in. The Gazprom state, because of all of this oil. But what does that mean? I mean, we, we've got states, you know, where the former, uh, the former Secret Service uh, um, chief, is the president, that, that doesn't disqualify you from being uh, a member of civilized nations. And oil men, well, okay, we'll skip that one. Okay. Um, so the, but I think, I think this, this line, if you're, if you're a, uh, a member, a wannabe member of the G8, then, then uh, uh, 
this sets you apart. It sets you apart when, when, uh, when you are the, uh, the, uh, the leader of your country indifferent and callous toward, uh, toward the lives of your own people and glorify the state over, over the lives of your people. And it, it tells you when you're in a negotiation, who are you dealing with? And it, 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 uh, it, it informs you how to deal with this country. Thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. And thanks to Haynes and Boone. We're podcasting tonight. So if you would raise your hand so I get a sense of how many people there are, if you have questions, and then Emily will come over. So let's just get a sense in the room. Okay, great. Steve, first of all, we're so sorry to have you have left Dallas. You were a great addition to our city. Do you feel that you have, are under kind of any kind of threat having written this book? Well, my editor is pissed. Um, uh, I'm asked that a lot. Um, and um, I, don't think, I don't think I am. You know, uh, um, uh, you know when, I, when I lived out there, I did a lot of investigative reporting and, uh, in, this, uh, in this case. And uh, one, of, one of the shames, I've, I've never been threatened. Um, and uh, and um, I mean, I say that in in uh, jest. There's a Russia is a lot more dangerous than Central Asia and the Caucasus. People do die there, and people do get people do get hurt. And one of the victims is an uh, American reporter, Paul Klevnikov. And in fact, Anna Polakovskaya was an American citizen. She was born in New York City. Her her father was a UN diplomat. So. Uh, Foreigners, Americans do get killed. Um, Mark Franchetti is, is probably the best investigative reporter in Moscow. He's a Brit, and he, he works for the, the Sunday Times. And I, I asked Mark, why aren't you dead? And, and, uh, and, and he, said, he said that uh, he had dinner, by the way, four night, uh, with Paul Klevnikov four nights before he was he was uh, killed, and uh, and Paul Klevnikov was a was a, a great fan of Vladimir Putin. He uh, and a and a fan of the glorifying of glorifying of the Russian state. Somehow he crossed the line too, uh, and and was and was killed. But Mar- Mark said, "What you have to do to get killed is you have to uh, get really personal into someone's personal business, like really personal business." And the other thing you can do is uh, interfere with someone's business, their cash flow. And, uh, and I think that's right. And so, you know, reporting on a bunch of, you know, of these, these people, I don't think it's crossing a line. And, and, uh, and really, what am I doing here? I'm taking six people who died and showing how they lived, bringing them to life as real people. So I don't, I don't think that's a threat to the Russian state. Yeah, I was just, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Putin uh, at times has made his people suffer and feel small, which I thought was very eloquently said. 
why, in your view, um, has the oppression of the Russian people by their leaders been so prevalent throughout Russian history? That's a good, a good question. Why is the name of the book Putin's Labyrinth? Putin's Labyrinth is the Russian continuum. What is this labyrinth? It is this history, starting with Ivan the Terrible 500 years ago, and just goes forward. The, the, the uh, Russians have voted, they've chosen, to live medievally. Uh, so uh, Putin just, he came upon them, that's true. But then they reelected him, and they, and they reelected his, or elected his chosen successor. And I don't go along with this whole thing of the rigged elections. Yes, the numbers were probably pumped up, but these guys were really elected, and they're genuinely popular. Um, you know, uh, Ivan, Ivan is famous for you know, jamming poles through people's bodies and, uh, and poison, poisoning people and uh, rolling them around in the snow until they die. And, uh, you know, uh, Litvinenko swallowed a, a uh, you know, a nuclear isotope. I mean, it's just sort of the modern version of it. Uh, but the, the you know, uh, the Russian people are in this position, but they chose this. They chose this, but I, I, I just wanted to add, add a couple sentences about it because I don't dislike Putin. Um, in fact, if I, if I were uh, Putin, I'd probably do uh, most of the things that, that he's done. Glorify the country, uh, build an economy based on oil, go abroad and beat my chest uh, and criticize, criticize the United States. Um, Russians have never lived better. Never, this is an important thing to know. Never have Russians lived better. Not just the uh, cream of the crop. Right? The everyday Russian, not during the Soviet period, not during the Tsarist period. And they, and they know that. What was the, the era of freedom-like, the 90s, total chaos. They were on their knees. The uh, currency was devalued twice. Twice people lost all of their savings. Doctors, lawyers, physicists, uh, all kinds of specialists, engineers became drivers you know, and selling a Coke in a market. And that's what they associate with democracy. And, and so that they support Putin is not, is not surprising. But I, I just draw that line. What I'm trying to do is draw a line at, at the, at the uh, anything goes attitude. That's what separates Russia from, from the rest of the G8 countries. Did that, did that answer your question? Okay, Barry Crossman. Um, during the 90s, uh, there were 17 or 18 different mafia factions operating uh, with impunity, and also the oligarchs were engaged in sort of wiping out anybody that uh, got in their way. Uh, has it changed a lot since then, which is why the Russian people say, look, it was so bad in the 90s, uh, it couldn't be any worse. It's got, you know, this is a lot better than it was, so we'll accept what there is uh, because it is an improvement. Yeah, this is, well, this is a good question, and it 
depends what you think is good. So I'll say what I think it is, and then you, know, you can make your value judgment. So uh, during the Tsarist period and during the, during the Soviet period, Russian murder was carried out by the state. So you know, the czars would sort of decide who would live or die, uh, and they would be you know, put on the rack or uh, you know, broken on the wheel, you know, the, the usual humane punishments. And um, Stalin, you know, the bullet in the back of the head. But they didn't permit uh, 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 other people couldn't choose to murder somebody. It was not a uh, uh, wanton crime, violent crime on the streets. They wouldn't allow that. The state did the murders. And, and the change during the, the Yeltsin period, during the 90s, was that the state stopped murdering, but everybody else started murdering. So it's incredible, as you're, as you're describing, uh, you know, business done at the point of a gun and you know, hundreds of bankers. Banking was the worst business to be in. Uh, you know, those guys just, I mean, it's, not, it's not an exaggeration to say they died like flies. They really did. Uh, and um, Putin is a hybrid. So there's the killing on the streets, as I've described, you know, and, and killing by the state. Killing in which the state is complicit because the state has the, the proof that the state has given it's, it's okay is that the killers are never caught. It's, it's always one of these things where, you know, the driver, the lookout is picked up. And some, sometimes the uh, trigger man is, but they never, you never, ever see the mastermind. Is never, that makes the state complicit. So uh, what do you think? I don't know which. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. When I was a child, we had these little desks, and we used to kind of hunker underneath them because Russia was the enemy. And then, of course, other enemies got in the way as they have today, and Russia was no longer the enemy. Have we forgotten that Russia is still very much an enemy, fighting for some of the same resources that we are, most especially with the Middle East? And how should we as Americans view Russia? Because I think we forget about all of this, and Russia still being an enemy. That's a good, that's a good question, sort of the same, the same question, you know, should we fear? <clears throat> I don't think Russia is our enemy. Russia is our adversary. Uh, and it's, it's a, but it's a... Uh, it's, it's an important nuance. It's a, it's a commercial adversary. It's a political adversary. Um, you know, uh, it's, uh, Alexander Litvinenko was poisoned in London in a Western uh, capital, but he was a Russian. He was a, you know, okay, he, he had become a Brit like 10 days before. Uh, you know, and so... Uh, he was, a, he was a Russian. I mean, for, to call Russia an enemy, then you would have to say that Russia is threatening the United States. He's not. But he's thre- he, he, uh, just what one has to know, and when one is sitting across that negotiating table, is Russia is a serious country. Putin and Medvedev are shrewd, incredibly disciplined, uh, uh, focused, Leaders, negotiators, these are, these are not children. We're treating them, we're acting like children at the negotiating table with them. 
on oil, on pipelines, uh, and um, on power in, in Europe. They were running circles around us. And, uh, and you have to keep in mind that the mindset is, is, bez, is, is bez predel. Anything goes. It's very serious. Uh, and, uh, and so I reject politely the, you know, the notion that, uh, that Russia is an enemy, but we just have to keep in mind that, that there's a really formidable uh, country whose um, uh, opinion on questions we care about is contrary to ours. Would you comment on Medvedev and the future and the difference between Medvedev and Putin? Medvedev speaks more quietly. <laughs> uh, seriously, that's about it. I mean, I, I just, I, I think that, you know, we're, we're, we're very early in, in, in his uh, uh, term in power, um, May the 1st or, or whenever it was, May the 7th. And, and um, so he hasn't had time to, you know, we haven't had time. But Putin put him there for a reason, and, and, and he's voiced the same. I mean, literally, if you close your eyes, the, the statements he makes in that quiet voice are Putin's. So he's not going to beat his chest, but, the, but effectively, uh, it's Putin in power. For now, let's talk again next year. Uh, Steve, about two weeks ago, I read something about the czar's uh, DNA was finally resolved that all of his family was killed and you know that's something that's been of historical interest for many years. Is that an issue anymore in the Russian society or is that sort of a non-event? That, that they were killed. That they were all Non-event. Non-event, yeah. Uh, you never, never hear they don't really talk about you know they talk about uh, you get um, People talking about Peter the Great, Ivan the Terrible. That's about it. Yeah. And Stalin loved Ivan the Terrible, as you know. You know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you. Oh, thanks. Uh, my question is about Russia's growing role in the financial system as a result of this huge amount of wealth that's coming into the country because of oil and gas and materials. Um, are we at a point now where the politicians are basically playing checkers with Russia and Russia is playing chess in the sense that by the time a President McCain gets around to trying to kick Russia out of the G8, he's going to wake up and realize that they have a huge amount of reserves in Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, huge amount of our steel manufacturing is owned by Evraz and Severstal, and well, you get the idea. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know something about the election that I don't know. Um, this is a good, a good, a good question. Um, at the heart of this question is that is this uh, difference between the Russia, the the essential difference of Russia today, uh, the old Russia, since since Ivan the Terrible, you know, uh, uh, alarming Europe by. Marching over the border uh, with its army, Russia is not marching anywhere anymore. It's going into Europe, but it's doing it through its financial uh, weight, and it's it's um, it's 
doing it with the connivance of uh, uh, American and European uh, investment banks. Are you from an investment bank? Are you a conniver? Yeah. This man's at fault. Okay. <laughs> okay. So um, I don't think I, th I, th I think I do I do think that okay. Russia's uh, uh, um, Russia is moving into uh, uh, into um, uh, Western uh, institu financial institutions uh, and uh, enterprises, businesses um, um, through this this incredible oil wealth and. Uh, I, th I just want to draw a line. I, th I think the picture you painted is slightly alarmist in the sense that I don't think you know suddenly we're going to wake up and find ourselves you know uh, our enterprises um, you know suddenly dominated by Russia. Um, however, I think I think that um, that uh, that we do need to know that 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 uh, that Russia does see. This this is a uh, the, uh, a uh, legitimizing of Russia. The West we regard money, banking, investment banks, uh, uh, brokers, the ownership of companies as a legitimate uh, way to have influence. You can have a seat at the table if you own a bank. Uh, if you're one of Goldman Sachs' big clients, you can have a seat at the table that you couldn't have. If you were just the guy who owned, you know, the second most nukes in the world, and so R Russia has legitimized itself, uh, is in the process of, of doing this, and so it is going to have seats at at the table in influential in in influential forums in which we do business. Well, we'll see if it's a good question or not. But you talked about. Uh, the relationship that Putin and the government has with their people, essentially that they don't care that much about their people. And, and you're talking about the advantages of, of, of Russia from some of that perspective, and I'm wondering in the complexity of the world if you feel that a nation is at a disadvantage these days if it doesn't care about its people, or if it does care about its people, rather. Do you understand the question? So, so are we screwed? Because are we at a disadvantage as a nation if we care about our people? Yeah, and another nation that cares about its people are they at a disadvantage no, no, I, in the I complexity see. of the world yeah. today? You're a tough man. Um, I think we're not at a disadvantage. I um, I think that the um, of course the um, you know it's the old thing you know it goes back to being in a, a schoolyard you know the schoolyard bully the one the one who was willing to go around and punch everyone in the nose. You know, not everyone wanted to get into a dust-up with that guy. So, you know, people would just stay away, and, and, that, you know, and that was sort of, sort of it. And, and, and they ended up with a certain amount of power. And this is Russia, you know, willing to go around and swagger in this anything-goes attitude. But I, th I think in the organizations, in the, uh, in the settings in which it's, it's trying to have power, that doesn't go very far. Uh, negotiations over... Kosovo, um, arms negotiations, uh, negotiations over missile defense, Middle East, Iran, uh, North Korea. 
but what does go far is the is the uh, the intellectual mindset that corresponds with that, and that's this very disciplined, uh, uh, willing to go to any extreme to win attitude. So if we're at a disadvantages, we're soft. You know, not soft in the sense of you know of um, you know you got a swagger, but I mean I mean disciplined in a negotiation, a tough tough negotiator. And uh, you know the the Russians were always known for this. They are now, and you know just as an example, you know I uh, on my blog I talk a lot about the pipeline war, the war uh, sort of this unspoken war between. Russia and the West for control of natural gas in Europe. And, and this has been going on for, uh, well, uh, the climax of it has been going on for, uh, since about 2006. We lost it. Why did we lose it? We never even appointed a senior negotiator, a guy, uh, a guy of, the, uh, of the serious gravitas of, say, Jim, Jim Baker or Brzezinski, someone, someone who, uh, who could seriously sit in a, in a negotiating room and, uh, and stare down Putin. You know, we've got junior guys in the State Department, you know, just barely out of school and uh, doing it. And Medvedev and Putin went around to all the capitals and wined and dined these guys. And, and lo and behold, you know, they, they basically, you know, it's, it's an unspoken victory, but they are the victors of the, the pipeline war. Ladies and gentlemen, please give us a For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.